From ICRT, this is Hearsay, the show that features spoken word performances from right here in Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, and in this hour we'll be featuring some of the stories told at May's Taipei Story Slam event. During the event, storytellers were asked to prepare a seven-minute story based on the night's theme, On Thin Ice. All of the storytellers were told their story had to be true, it had to be from personal experience, and had to be told from memory, so no scripts allowed. On today's show, we're going to hear about politics in Taiwan's Foreign Correspondence Club, dealing with Taiwan's legal system with less-than-perfect Mandarin, and a life-or-death situation in a vegetarian cooking class. But first up, we're going to hear a story from Colin Norman about dealing with a nightmare student at an international school in Shanghai. Sticking with the theme on thin ice, we asked all of our speakers to tell us how they keep cool. Colin told us he'd like to know that himself. Here he is, live at Taipei Story Slam. So there I was in the classroom, and I'm slowly turning my body because I hear a commotion. Now, fourth graded commotion generally isn't too bad of a thing, and so just out of the corner of my eye, I managed to catch. The troublemaker of the class, the nightmare, the one that makes every class painful, and I watch him push a backpack up to the window, the open window, because it's Shanghai and hot. He pushes the backpack to the window, steps up on it, and puts one leg out the window. But let me back up. This school, this job, this city was. Everything I didn't want in my life. Shanghai, the people were horrible. They could not line up. They pushed. They spit. And unless you were family or had Guanxi, you were nothing. And I didn't live in nice Shanghai. I didn't live in Pudong with the beautiful buildings. No, I lived in the south of Shanghai, where all the peasants came in on the trains to set up shop. I have seen people poo on every corner of the street. And here I was in China, living the dream.、Um, the rosy-colored glasses lasted about six weeks, and it was an exciting six weeks. And then the glasses came away, and I was miserable. But I was going to make the best of it. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this school. Now, this was an international school, but not actually an international school. They said they were an international school, and they required the kids to have one of the parents to have an international passport. But no one actually certified them as an international school. This was the sort of school where the police would show up once a month and come and smoke cigars in the hallways, looking at the kids, and then leave with paper bags of money. This was the kind of school where they would yell at us to do more colorful activities with the kids when the parents were coming, but then the rest of the year we couldn't get colored paper. This was the kind of school that, when the laminator stopped working, the foreigners were plotting to take down the school by spending their budget repairing the laminator. They hated us. They hated everything about us. They hated us being there. But they knew by having us there, they could charge all they wanted. This was the school. Now let's talk about the parents. Usually, that first day of school is really fun—the day where you get to go. Hey, kids, what do your parents do? Oh, you're noodle seller. That's fantastic. And what are you, an engineer? Wow. No. Hey, kids, what do your parents do? Boss. Cool. Boss. Great. Yeah. Boss. Boss. Okay. <laughs> are anyone's parents not a boss? Wow. 
Okay, uh, my lesson plan's used up. I got nothing. Okay, how about moms? What do your moms do? Shopping? Okay. Shopping. Shopping. Oh, she cooks. Oh, no, that's your IE. What does your mom do? Yeah, shopping. Okay. So these are the parents of the school. To give you an idea of what these parents are like, um, one of the kids came to my office to beg me to help him get a good grade because his dad promised he'd come back from Fujian and spend the summer with him, but only if he got all A's. These were the parents of the school. Um, and so these kids were a very special mix. This, this mix of being emotionally denied everything they needed from their parents while being given everything physical they needed from their IEs and from their nannies. Uh, they got whatever they wanted except what they needed. And so this was the situation we were in, in a school that hated us, with kids that got whatever they wanted but were so emotionally destroyed that they were incredibly difficult to deal with. Uh, the best kid in this school, his parents had bought him a cell phone, but that's because he disappeared in their mansion with books and they couldn't find him all day. So they had to be able to call him and track him down. Um, and of course, the foreigners dealt with this in the way that most foreigners do. Severe alcoholism. <laughs> and... That's where we were. Now, there was one boy. Uh, as he's still a student, I should make up a name for him. Let's call him Tommy. Uh, this boy, Tommy, in fourth grade, he was the nightmare of nightmares. He was just a walking disaster. He was everything the teacher fears rolled into one little nightmare. Uh, I had to have a meeting with the parents of the best kid in the school because that kid was having nightmares about this kid. Um... Tommy was unique. Uh, as a matter of fact, if any of you have seen that uh, one movie, it's the movie where the kid runs up and down the airplane, pretending to be an airplane and hitting everyone in the back of the head with his arms. On Golden Week, I was on vacation, leaving the school in October for the first time, and saw a child running up and down the aisles, pretending to be an airplane and screaming, and went, my God, he could be one of mine, and he was. <laughs> it was Tommy. So, this kid, uh, I learned that sometimes the best thing to do was to completely ignore him. Uh, Tommy, you want to scream, you want to yell, you want to lie on the floor and throw a tantrum, that's great, we're teaching over here. And one day, I just would not pay attention to him because I had to teach these other kids. And eventually, he decided that he didn't give a shit. So he pushed his backpack over to the window, climbed up, and got one leg out. And just as I was turning, he was putting that leg on the planters hanging outside the window, at which point my entire world collapsed into a tiny, bright singularity of panic and fear and distress. And a kid I hated so much, it oozed out my veins, suddenly became a kid I loved so much that it was going to destroy my entire world if he made it out that window. And I have never crossed 10 feet faster in my entire life than in that moment. And I had him, and I pulled him out the window, and I have never had love and fear and caring so quickly turn into rage and <laughs> insanity. And he knew immediately how in trouble he was. So he immediately went limp and would not do anything as I was screaming, go, G get out, go to Madam Wong's office. And he wouldn't move, and I'm dragging him out the hallway, in which which point I was intercepted by 
the hall monitor, who then took him out of my hands and tried to calm me down. And so, long story short, the school would not call his father because they would lose face. And I said, he's not coming back in my classroom until we talk to his dad. So we set up a program. We got him in there, and we decided that if he was good every single class of the week, his dad would let him spend time with him that weekend, which worked wonderfully at first. And then two weeks on, it was not so great. In three weeks, he was back to normal. I found out, hey, how's your time with your dad going? Oh, he's going to do it next week. He's going to do all three weeks next week? Yeah. And so thin ice. Is the thin ice these students, what we're putting these students on with these sort of situations? Is the thin ice the teacher that has to deal with them? I think the thin ice is this situation where we're putting these expectations on these kids. And I can't wait for this ice to break because this is the moment where we're going to actually let these kids have what they need to have and be what they need to be. Because as it is, we are destroying the next generation. And I hate to go all slam poet at the end there, but something's got to change because that kid, Tommy, he needs better help than I can give. Thank you. That was Colin Norman. He's an English teacher who does some acting and improv on the side as well. In the end, Colin left Shanghai after about a year living there and came to Taiwan, where he's been teaching English for around four years now. Since the theme of the night was on thin ice, I asked him, living in Taiwan, what situation makes him feel like he's on thin ice? Anytime I have to talk to parents, especially if the parents speak about 20 words of English, but they still want to show off that they can, and all of a sudden you get these situations where they go, oh, uh, Tommy is good and you try and reassure them you say oh yeah yeah he's doing great and they don't believe you they they're sure that their kid is not trying hard enough so he's really really like yeah 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 he's fine he's fine he's fine he's he's really really good really do you find yourself ever overselling a kid because you're worried the parents will come down too hard on him (laughs) yes yeah i think uh I think I have to oversell. I think that's the only way. There's, I've never found an in-between. Either they don't believe you or you oversell so much that they're like, okay, this teacher's too easy. Colin's now taught English in the mainland and Taiwan, so I was curious if he's found that teaching students from a different cultural background has any challenges. Colin told me about one particular challenge that caught him by surprise. Because the kids are used to having such kind of a stringent or, or tight relationship with the teacher. A lot of times they don't want to make their Antingban teacher angry. There's certain Antingban teachers you can hear screaming from the other side of the school. So they have this, uh, what seems to be kind of a very, they, they walk on eggshells a lot of the time, I think with a lot of their Antingban teachers. So what I didn't see coming was that when they get a teacher that's more relaxed or more kind of a Western style of, hey, let's be buddies and also I'm going to teach you English. And they really, really change their classroom personality completely. So a student in an Antingban and a student in my class are almost like two completely different students. They open up in a lot of ways, but also they'll try and take advantage in ways that they know that I'm not going to scream and lose my head. So they want to see how far they can push things. So it's, there's a good and a bad. You have to be careful about their behavior, but at the same time, you see kids really open up and be really interesting people. Welcome back. I'm Keith Menconi, and if you're just joining us, this is Hearsay, the show that features spoken word performances from right here in Taiwan. 
Today on the show, we're hearing live story performances from May's Taipei Story Slam event. Once again, the theme of the night was on thin ice. Those times where we find ourselves far away from our comfort zone, lost in a situation we don't understand, just on the edge of disaster, praying that the ice is going to hold. Our next storyteller is Alan Patterson. When asked how he keeps cool, he says he does not. Well, living in Taiwan, can't have everything, I guess. Here's his story. For the first time in my five-year political career, I faced an opponent. I was the membership chairperson of the Taiwan Foreign Correspondents Club. I was quite proud of the fact that in the nearly five years of my uh, tenure as the membership chairperson, I could pledge to all of the members that I would continue the graft, malfeasance, kleptocracy, and general incompetence that had characterized my, my service to them. So I'm sure you'll find it quite surprising that uh, a few months ago, I faced an opponent. Um, and this opponent was not nobody. He was a lawyer. He had homes in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Uh, he had several jobs. Uh, and he, was, he also appeared frequently on uh, TV news programs uh, as a political analyst. Uh, by comparison, I was just an, an ex-journalist. Uh, my only interest in, in serving on the TFCC board was helping my fellow journalists with their work in Taiwan. Well, be that as it may, uh, a few months ago, uh, they announced the election, and, and I was quite surprised to find that I faced this person. And very quickly, the, the behind-the-scenes lobbying started. Uh, some of our journalist members started raising questions about our dwindling membership. There was even one reporter who wrote a blog for the uh, Forbes magazine website in which he pointed out the rather abysmal drop in our membership numbers. At, at that time, we had uh, 14 fully-fledged journalists who, who were members of the uh, Taipei Foreign Correspondents Club. Uh, the number of our non-journalist members actually doubled that number. Uh, and that's really kind of a sad state of affairs, given the size of Taiwan's economy and its importance in, in military and political affairs. But as, as many of you probably know, uh, world news organizations have been cutting costs, cutting staff, cutting jobs, uh, under the impact of online news providers like Yahoo and Google. Even so, on, on the day of the election, I stood up and I quite sadly said to our membership that I was forced by my, my rival to abandon my earlier pledge of, of just making a general dog's dinner of, of my uh, work for the TFCC. Uh, instead, I pointed out to the members what, what I had done to try to stem uh, the, the very steep decline in our membership. Uh, and at the same time, I, I recommended that we try and reach out more to the uh, non-traditional journalists, the bloggers, the uh, freelancers, those types of, of people. Uh, we were becoming a very clubby club uh, just for, for recognized journalists. 
So the, the day of the election came, I stood up, gave my speech, pointed this all out to, to the members, and then as soon as I finished my speech, I noticed that there was a, a group of about three people who immediately started asking questions of me. Uh, one very incisive reporter said to me, can you answer how many journalists we had as members in December of 2013? I said, uh, I, I'm really sorry, I don't have that number on me right now, but if you'll give me a chance, I'll go back and check my computer and, and let you know. Uh, but he, he didn't let that go. He kept asking this question over and over during the meeting. Uh, and, and then finally I said to him, look, I can even tell you what our membership numbers were in July of two, 2011 if you'll just give me the time to go back and look at my computer. So then that finished and, and my opponent stood up and spoke. Uh, and he was very smooth. Uh, he uh, sat down and I, I felt like it was only fair that I, I should ask him a, a few questions also uh, because he had only joined the club uh, just a few months before. And as soon as I asked the questions, that same group of about three people who had asked me all the very pointed questions shouted me down. They said that it was unfair that I should ask any questions of, of my opponent. So we, we left it at that and then held the election. And uh, so we counted up all the votes, uh, tallied them on, on a whiteboard, and to everyone's surprise, it was a dead heat. 10 to 10. At that point, our president was totally flummoxed. He had no, there was nothing in our club charter that covered such a situation. He suggested flipping a coin. But actually, I thought that the better thing to do would have been to have a, an arm wrestling contest. <laughs> so anyway, be that as it, as it may, our president finally came up with a brilliant inspiration. We would have a new election immediately. This time we had a, a secret ballot election. Each ballot was counted one by one and tallied on the whiteboard. In the beginning, my opponent had a 10% margin over me. It was looking pretty bad. But then finally, I emerged the victor, 10 to nine. <laughs> then, as everyone was kind of pushing back their chairs and standing up to leave, I quickly stood up and got everyone's attention. I renewed my pledge to continue the graft malfeasance and general incompetence that had characterized my service. And as I looked around it, I looked around at the smiling faces of my supporters. I remembered them. Thank you. That was Alan Patterson. Like he said in the story, he's still a board member of the Taiwan Foreign Correspondents Club. He's also a self-described underemployed journalist trying to remake himself as a novelist. I also asked Alan what puts him on thin ice in Taiwan, and he said driving. Having driven a car in Taiwan for more than 20 years or something, I've learned to kind of expect the unexpected but uh, it seems like invariably there's, every time I go out, there's always something that happens that uh, totally surprises me and, and makes me feel like it's quite dangerous to drive. 
So you've been living in Taiwan for a while now. Have you have you changed your driving style to to, to fit here at all? Do you I, do you ever find yourself kind of uh, doing doing some of the things that you see other people doing on the Taiwan roads? Oh yeah, it's funny. Uh, I'm from uh, the Midwest in the United States, and and people there also tend to drive very slowly and and carefully. But I, I've noticed now that when when I go back for a visit. I sometimes use some of the driving techniques that I've learned here in Taiwan, such as maybe I've missed the place where I want to turn and I suddenly start driving in reverse or something like that. That's that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. I'm sure that people back in the States don't appreciate it too much either. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Alan told me that as a journalist, it's often difficult to sell a story with Taiwan in the headline. So I asked him, if you were talking to an editor, what is the pitch you would make to convince them that covering Taiwan is worth it? I think uh, Taiwan is one of the world's largest economies. In addition to that, I think Taiwan has a lot of importance in military and political affairs. And I think a lot of times that it is neglected on all those fronts. I mean, it's still significant in that Taiwan makes something like a third of the world's semiconductors. Also, it's similar, you know, roughly, what, 40% of the world's flat panel screens. So it's still a very significant place in terms of technology manufacturing. These are just not very sexy things. I mean, Aunt Agatha in in, uh, Wichita, Kansas, her her mouth doesn't drop open when when she sees news about uh, semiconductors or flat panel displays. So the kind of stories that are coming out of Taiwan are just maybe difficult for the average reader to really relate to. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Up next, we're going to hear from Josh Arsenault of all of our storytellers today. Josh probably came the closest to breaking through that ice. Just a quick note, this story was recorded in May, and in it, Josh refers to a major news event in Taiwan that had just happened the week before, so at the time, still very fresh in our minds. Anyway, you'll see what I mean in a second. Here's his story. The great thing about being here um, with a room full of expats and well-traveled people is uh, there are a lot of great stories uh, about places that are difficult, uh, challenging, and potentially life-threatening. And uh, many of us know that there are few places as difficult, challenging, and life-threatening as Bangkok, Thailand, which is uh, exactly where I found myself in 2007 uh, for the first time. And I was stuck there uh, for a few days, and I had a very substantial travel budget to spend. And uh, I wasn't sure what to do with my time, but being a wild, crazy, and reckless person... I did something quite unbelievable. I decided to use that time and money in Bangkok to go to a vegetarian cooking class. (laughs) Because I am wild and crazy. So anyway, uh, I went to a... uh, this vegetarian cooking class, and uh, it went well. It was uh, kind of an off day. There was just myself and the teacher, May, uh, who happened to own the restaurant. 
and um, I learned many dishes. I, I cooked many things, uh, sadly, all of which I have completely forgotten. But uh, it was a good time. went well. And afterwards, uh, I brought the fruits of my labor to the table in the empty restaurant and sat down with the only other person who happened to be there, who was a fellow American. His name was Michael. And he was a, a really interesting guy. And um, I, I remember exactly the scene. It was, it was myself and uh, this man, Michael, who was uh, maybe about 10 years older than myself. And we were sitting at a table right uh, against the wall. So it was just the two of us in this restaurant. Uh, May, the owner, was off to the side taking care of uh, business, I guess. And uh, he was an interesting guy because uh, what he did uh, was he spent most of the year in Japan. And he was a Buddhist, and he would uh, take care of the, a Buddhist temple way up in the mountains. And when he wasn't caretaking this Buddhist temple, he was in Bangkok helping his friend May uh, with her vegetarian restaurant and her cooking classes. So uh, Michael and I were having a good conversation, talking about all things Buddhist and Japan and being an expat traveling away from the U.S. And uh, we were kind of lost in conversation uh, when all of a sudden we heard this uh, loud noise coming from the other side of the restaurant. And we looked up, and there was this large, heavyweight, middle-aged Thai man, half-naked. He was just wearing pants and uh, no shirt. And he had a wild look in his eyes and a very large knife in his hand, which was bleeding profusely. And he came up with the sword, actually. Uh, it was a machete. He came up with this machete straight at us. And the only thing in his way was a scooter, which for some reason, I don't know why you put a scooter in a vegetarian restaurant, but there was a scooter right there in his way. Uh, which he just started hacking to pieces. There were pieces of scooter flying everywhere. He was yelling and screaming, and he came right up to Michael, the Buddhist caretaker, and I sitting at our table. And he raised his machete, looking at us, and of course, I'm freaked out, uh, and uh, so is Michael. Uh, this doesn't happen every day. And... Uh, <laughs> So uh, here's this man, and he's holding this machete aloft, looking down at us, stuck between him and the wall. And his eyes are bloodshot, his hand is bleeding like crazy, and he is yelling in Thai, I don't know what, but he is just looking, looking for the button to press to just go at it. And um, right there, I pretty much, I thought that was it that this is it right here in Thailand at the vegetarian restaurant. This is it. This is, this is, this is where it happens. And um, I knew that had I tried to turn around and make a run for it or make a run for him or do anything, that machete was coming right down on me because that's exactly what he wanted to do. And he's sitting there screaming at me, rah, rah, and I don't know what he's saying. And I look to Michael 
And he puts his hands together. He prostrates himself to this man. And the crazy guy with the machetes looks up at him and he goes, <sighs> and Michael just prostrates himself more. And this crazy man is looking at us and he doesn't know what to do. And he just, <sighs> and he mumbles. And I see it's working. So I put my hands together and I do the same thing. And I bow, I bow. And there we are. We are both bowing to him, bowing and bowing. And the Thai man is looking at us kind of confused. And he mumbles, ah, ah. And his screaming subsides. And uh, the machete comes down. And as we, as we bow, he, he confusedly stops, turns around, and he just trails off and walks away. That was fine. Everything was okay. Uh, immediately afterwards, I went and got a fantastic Wat Po massage, and I pulled all the uh, tension out of me. But uh, I was thinking about this story last week uh, when the news about the MRT attack uh, came out, and I was thinking about this, and I highly doubt that uh, had, what had we done what we had done uh, in this situation, it would have made any difference. I certainly saw firsthand that um, when someone's coming at you with bad intent, um, sometimes the best thing you can do is just bow. Thank you. That was Josh Arsenault. He's an English teacher and he's lived in Taiwan for five years. He says one thing that puts him on thin ice in Taiwan is watching movies with a friend at an MTV at two in the morning. Another thing would have to be explaining to his girlfriend what he was doing out at two in the morning. Welcome back to Hearsay. I'm Keith Manconi. Today we've been listening to stories from Taipei Story Slam's May event. I want to take a quick moment here to encourage anybody who's listening to really consider making it out to a Story Slam event, either as an audience member or as a storyteller. They're usually held in Taipei on the last Thursday evening of every month. The next one will be November 27th. You're in for some great performances, much like the ones we've been hearing today. It also is one of the best places to hear about life in Taiwan from both the foreign and the local community. To become a featured storyteller at a Story Slam event, you can send the organizers a one-paragraph pitch of your story to taipeiplayers at gmail.com. You can also learn more at Taipei Story Slam's Facebook page. Our final storyteller today is Sean Scanlon. He says he beats the heat by drinking. Here's his story. On the way out the door, my wife said, get a translator. And I thought that was a good idea because I was going to court. And I, I have no lawyer. And I have no idea about the legal system in Taiwan. So... I had planned to get to the courthouse early because it was, it was completely uh, covered in barricades and police because of the Occupy movement. And I was lucky I'm the first court case. So I follow the, 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 the workers, the, the staff there, and I follow them on their scooters behind the barricades, over the sidewalks, and into the sweet parking spots. And I walk in about an hour before my court case. 
And I go to the information desk, and I was like, I need a translator. Can you give me a translator? I think it's my right. And they're like, okay, yeah. Fill out these forms. And I, and I, and I fill out all the forms, and they get stamped, and they get uh, processed. And then they give it back to me, and they said, no translator. And I was like, okay, well. They, but they say, the judge speaks good English. So you're okay. I was like, all right. And I trusted them, you know. And I, I went upstairs. I'm still an hour early. And I go into the courtroom, uh, the, where, where my court case is. And I, had, I try to talk to one of the, the people working there. And I said, look, I have no translator. And I'm a foreigner. And I'm going before this judge. Can you help me? And they're like, oh, yeah. Um, the, you, the next case, oh, the the guy who robbed your house is a drug addict and he denies it so you're not going to get anything anyway so don't worry about it <laughs> and I go okay I was like um, is there any place to get coffee here <laughs> and then they say yeah yeah downstairs and I was like oh thank you that's helpful <laughs> so, so I, I have my coffee for like 30 minutes I come back upstairs to the courtroom and they say, I need, they need my ID to go in the courtroom. And when I give them my ID, I see the, the ID ahead of me on the clipboard is the guy who robbed my grandmother's house. And his picture, and he's sitting right there. I put two and two together. And I know he denied it. So I'm just going to, you know, I've always wanted to punch this guy. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of nice. I walk over and I say, hey, I, I want my stuff back. And he's like, mm. and I know he's a drug addict. And he's like, mm. some Taiwanese or something. I, mm. I thought, okay, let the courts do their thing. Yeah, I do. I go into court, and lo and behold, the judge. I mean, she's like a hyena with lipstick on. Man, it's, the first thing she says is, "Mr. Scanlon, there's no no translator for you today." You cannot talk in this courthouse. You cannot address the guy there. And please uncross your legs in my courtroom. And of course, I didn't know what she was saying. You know that, and she said it again. And I was like, uh, she means cross my uncross my legs. And I, I kind of got it, and I did it. And I was like, okay. This guy is accused of robbing six houses, and the next person after me was an old lady who kind of inadvertently bumped into this guy robbing the house and the judge is really not nice to her because she can't remember stuff she can't remember the name of the guy who lives underneath her anyways the next court date was a month later and the month later I was going to get my translator so I was happy I was like okay it's going to be better so a month passes I go to the courthouse I go early again I go to the same place and, I was like, and they're like happy there's like oh your translator's here I was like oh great yeah I go upstairs, and I see her, and she's got a, a wheelie bag. I was like, wow, that's weird. A translator with, like, a luggage? I'm like, I think she should have a notebook or something. I was like, oh, this is really weird. And, I, and the first thing she says to me is she says, at 12 o'clock, I have to be in Geelong. I was like, it's 1030 now. Like, how are you going to get to Geelong by noon? She's like, well, I have to. I was like, okay. Well... <laughs> And so we start the case, 
and the judge is questioning the cop and she's really going into the cop and I, I don't know what the hell's going on. It's like she's really yelling at the cop and I figured out he didn't bring the evidence file. He forgot it, you know, like, I don't know how. He's, he says, okay, my office is 10 minutes away. We'll just do intermission. So we're in the hallway and my translator is getting really impatient because she's got... She's got to go to Geelong for another case. Um, the cop comes back, and he's in the hallway sharing the evidence file with the criminal. And I was like, this is f***ing weird. Like, do they, are they working together? And, and I was like, and I said to the translator, can we go talk to them? And she's like, no. And I kind of squeeze over there. I was like, hey, what are you guys looking at? Like, what, what's the footprints and this and that? Why can't I see it? Why are you sharing it? And she's like, that's weird. They're not supposed to do that. I was like, okay, yeah. And then she gets a smart move. Is she interjects herself into the courtroom and says, look, i got to be at G-Long at noon. <laughs> you need to hear this case. I was like, yeah, okay, good. So it comes to me. She's translating. I do a sob story about how my apartment was robbed five times. This dude's a neighbor. I'm tired of it. He stole really photos of my grandmother and stuff. And as I'm saying this, she's translating, and tears are dropping. And, like, they're giving me tissue because I'm, you know, I've worked up the emotion. And um, after I give my deposition, she leaves. And the case is still going on, like, another hour. During the deposition, I said that I saw, I saw him on video robbing... And that's stuck in the criminal's mind. And after the case adjourned, um, he's outside and he's asking me to show him the video. And I was like, I don't need to show you shit. You know, I'm not a cop. I'm not sharing my... (laughs) I was like, how am I going to show you a video? And worse than that, he was calling me a liar, you know? And I stood toe-to-toe with him. I was going to take a swing at him. And the cop interjected and uh, so today I called to get his he was sentenced today three years six months for robbing six people's houses so that's a relief (laughs) thanks everybody That was Sean Scanlon. He's one of the co-founders of Taipei Story Slam. He also organizes other local events including the Urban Nomad Film Festival Sean was born in Taiwan, but he moved to the U.S. when he was five and in his mid-twenties moved back here. He told me that when he first came to Taiwan, he was studying Mandarin at Taiwan Normal University on a student visa. And at the time, the hassle of applying for a visa was even worse than it is now. And it's something that put him on thin ice more than once. Every three months, I had to go to the police station and produce reams of documents, including like my transcripts, paying my tuition stubs. My bank account information, I had to prove that I had changed 3,000 U.S. dollars from U.S. dollars into NT dollars. And it was just this huge rigmarole. And I was a student for three years. So every three months, I had to do this. And that, that felt like just completely thin ice. Was that a test of your, your, your Chinese abilities? I believe there was one time where they don't believe I was a student. So they would actually ask me questions in Chinese. Back then, there were some people who were borderline using this, saying they were studying, but not really studying. 
as much as they should be. I think a couple times they asked me questions in Chinese just to prove that I was at school, at Shada, actually studying. And I'm happy to say I passed that. Would this have been in the 2000s or the 90s? Yeah, yeah, around mm. then, late 90s, 2000s. When Chen Shui-bian became president, things kind of changed. It kind of improved a little bit. And, and I'm, I'm happy to say every year there's been progress. That's one good thing about Taiwan. So we made progress into the more accepting of international people. So Sean is a longtime resident and has studied Chinese for years. But I was curious if there are still any situations where he feels like his Chinese just isn't quite up to snuff. Other than in the courtroom, of course. He gave me this example. I'm going for a meeting with Chinese businessmen or government officials. Even though they say something in Chinese, you know what they're saying, but there's a way that they have said it or, or the tone of their voice that you might not catch. So even having the vocabulary and all the words there, there's still sort of little subtle cultural signifiers that take a while to, to pick up as well. Yes, yes. There's the implied meaning or the phrasing. For example, if they say they want to have coffee with you. That's usually a bad thing. You don't want to go be called into a meeting because there's something... They need to discuss with you, and it's usually not a good thing. So you have to be very careful in those types of situations. You know, you don't want to go out to have coffee. All right, that's it for today's show. This is actually the very first broadcast of the program, and we'd love to know what you think about it. You can leave a comment on the ICRT Facebook page or on the blog post for this episode. If this is something you want to hear more of, you've got to let us know. Also, if you didn't manage to catch the whole program or if you want to recommend it to a friend, you can find the show online on the Taiwan Talk podcast stream and the ICRT blog. Big thanks to all of our storytellers today and a big thanks to the organizers of Story Slam, Sean Scanlon and Mandy Rovita. Make sure to check out their Grand Slam Championship event coming up later this month, November 27th. It's going to feature the winners of all the Story Slam events that have taken place so far this year. Sure to be a lot of fun. You can learn more on Taipei Story Slam's Facebook page. Thank you for listening to Hearsay. Do hope you'll drop by again for next week's show. Same time, same place. I'm Keith Manconi. See you next time.